take first watch. episode of the first watch podcast i am zach and i'm here with cole how are you it's hot Mm, it is hot (laughs) (laughs) like actually weather-wise is it finally becoming summer-like in los angeles it's starting to get up there a little bit and i am not thrilled see something i was i just walked outside it is 86 degrees here and we have a low of 74 tomorrow we have a low of 69 i was literally like mystified as i walked outside over there i was like whoa 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 it's not 90 degrees it's not even 100 degrees what 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 the fuck (laughs) uh yeah you know today we reconvene over the course of the last two episodes that we've recorded i have tormented you by making us talk about not one or two or five but seven christopher nolan films it's a lot you know the first one of those was better for you than the second because we picked out three that you liked and maybe one that you didn't and the last one maybe a little less balanced than that but that episode did just go up as of day of this recording so if you're interested in the movies of christopher nolan most especially oppenheimer which we did a full episode on and then we've also talked about memento the prestige inception dunkirk tenet and Interstellar, all. So as a sort of mea culpa for that, today we're talking about movies that you like much more. Thank God, that was painful. (laughs) I really think that those came out very well, and we had a great fun time discussing them. I think it's something that slips my mind a lot, because not just between you and me, but whenever we invite somebody onto the show, I'm always thinking, who loves the movie that we're going to be talking about? Mm-hmm. Who among our friends was like, hit this with the 4.5 or the five-star rating? Whereas I actually kind of think sometimes you get a more interesting conversation when one or more people in the conversation are really skeptical about it. Yeah. I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. It was a change of pace for us. Yeah, it was fun to make fun of the guy. <laughs> but today we move on and the topic of today's episode or the main topic of today's episode is the latest film by Ira Sachs, which is Passages. But before we get into that, I'm actually going to start this in a weirder place than usual. Not what have you been watching lately, but what have you been reading lately? Because I think you just finished a book somewhat recently and then started a new one, right? Yeah, so audiobooks, of course. I work long hours, and half the time Mm -hmm. I don't really do too much at work, uh, such as the nature (laughs) of my job. So I need something to pass the time. Right. So I listened to the audiobook for Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, yeah. You know, get Mm -hmm. ready for the movie. Loved it really engrossing and i've started listening to american prometheus mm-hmm. based off of all this oppenheimer frenzy and right now i'm uh, like 11 hours in and right 15 hours <laughs> it's so long i read american prometheus like three or four years ago now at this Oof. point it's a very well written book it's a very long book. It's very long. You know what? It's filling up the days, so there's that at least. Yeah. But yeah, it's extremely interesting, and I love hearing all these little details that got cut out of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Just that fuller picture. I hadn't really considered exactly what it would be like to be going into Oppenheimer with a little bit less knowledge than I have, especially the book that it's based on that American Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Do you find that filling in those gaps, does that give you a greater appreciation? There's so much to this guy's life and the entire project and everything surrounding him that I'm impressed 
that Nolan was able to cut out all of this and just drill it right down to the bare essential details. Yeah. Which I think is a really crucial and undervalued aspect and adaptation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, driving that interest, it's all over. If you go into a Barnes and Noble right now, you will find this on an end cap Mm -hmm. display, probably 30 copies of it because people are really interested because of the way the movie conveys the story. Yeah. Right next to the display about girl dinner. (laughs) for me actually the one that i finished most recently has a connection to oppenheimer as well it was called the bells of nagasaki Mm. i believe that's by a man called dr takashi nagai it is a japanese novel written by a young doctor who survived the atomic bombing of nagasaki on august 9th of 1945 Mm. and i was put onto that by a movie that i watched called children of nagasaki which is a biopic about this author's life. This was the first of a few different books that he wrote while dying of leukemia at the end of his life from the radiation exposure during the blast. Though he did survive it and live about another decade, he spent most of it very sick. The book covers literally like, in some cases, minute by minute from before, during, immediately after, the day after, a few weeks after the bombing, and just gets really into... A lot of detail. First, kind of the sensory detail, which was quite scary, honestly, like upsetting and intense in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I was kind of thinking like academic remove by this professor. Mm -hmm. And then as it progresses, it becomes one of the very first accounts of what the bomb actually was and how it impacted the environment, how it impacted the people from the perspective of somebody that was there and was a professor of radiology, quite specifically. Oh, Jesus. So in a way, it was like everything that Oppenheimer isn't about. You know, there's Mm -hmm. that discourse going around about like, they don't show Hiroshima and they don't show Nagasaki. And it's because of the kind of subjectivity and everything sort of Oppenheimer. And it's like, literally, this is the shadow of it. This is the device, Mm -hmm. the implosion device that they make and test at the Trinity test is the fat man bomb that they drop on Nagasaki. So this is literally like the other half. And -hmm. you see these students, the people that survived were largely from this radiology department, sort of like deducing the things that that book and that movie will teach you. So it's just sort of an interesting companion piece to that. Mm -hmm. Maybe those people writing up the discourse should uh, read that book. I don't know. Exactly. Or audiobooks, no shame here. I'm an audiobook person. Yeah, I'm much more of a library book text guy. Uh, I, I'm holding a book <laughs> here, which is the one that I'm reading, which is Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. It has three bookmarks in it because of mm-hmm. the way that it is. Yeah. Great little book. You know what I'll shout about this just real quick is that there's a scene in the movie Blade Runner 2049 where mm. the character Joy, Ana de Armas, picks up a book, which is this book, and goes, will you read to me? And just having now read about half of it, that moment becomes much funnier because it is just not a book that would be possible to read to somebody. Mm. The basic setup of it is that there's a poem in the middle, the thousand line poem called Pale Fire. There's an introduction, there's commentary for every line of the poem, and then an index at the back. But all of that is a fiction novel with characters. It's very strange. (sighs) And there's a lot of like, you're reading the poem and then you're reading commentary on it. 
And then it's like, go read this thing in the index. And then it's like, go over to this other part of the book. It's been a trip. It's been an adventure. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> it is a little bit, but I also sort of find it invigorating. Nabokov is one of my favorites. Lolita was a book that kind of rearranged my brain when I was about 16 years old. Don't let them hear you. I let them hear me all through college. I was an English major. <laughs> And I listened to so many people drop the laziest takes in the world about that book. And what's funny is, as is my way, the more I hear people talk against something that I think is great, the greater I tend to find it. Like the more I'm like, no, that doesn't check out. That criticism doesn't make any sense. I don't agree with that. And it just makes me love it more and more and more. Very hard-headed that way. Uh... So off of the text into the image, what have you been watching lately? Well, let's see. First up, we got a pair of comedies. First is Joyride by Adele Lim. She's the screenwriter for Freezer with Asians and Riot on the Last Dragon. It's a directorial debut. It's about four Asian-American friends who travel throughout China in search of one of their birth mothers. And it is maybe the raunchiest comedy to come out in theaters in a long, 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 long time. Ooh, but interesting. I was laughing. I don't know if it's because it's so idiotic and raunchy. It's a little clunky. You know, it's like a studio comedy, so it's got its limits. But there's one joke with the tattoo located in a certain location that I died. Mm. <laughs> a certain location on a person's body. I see. That I died at. It's extremely tacky in the best way. And then on the opposite end, we've got the new prime original rom-com red white and royal blue oh yeah which is based off of a novel by a ya novelist about the son of the first female president and the royal prince of england falling in love with each other but of course you know he's a prince he's running for re-election can't really get together who's the mom is that tony collette uma thurman i mean if this was tony collette it would be a very different movie it would be i don't know another hereditary <laughs> spinoff but now it's Uma Thurman with the most Looney Tunes Texas accent you've ever heard talking about bottoming and being on Truvada. It's completely insane. Like its relationship to global politics is cracked out and unhinged. As a rom-com, though, it's just dreadfully uninspired. And the actors have no chemistry whatsoever, which is fatal. This one's all over my timeline. Friends of Taylor Swift <laughs> have been putting it continuously into my line of sight, both to critique it and to praise it. So I'm just getting it on both ends. Swifties would love this movie, and I do mean that in a derogatory manner. I've seen everything from like images to actual scene, like clips of scenes, mm -hmm. to you know your TikTok fan cam edits where it's set to music. It's like a Taylor Swift song. Yeah. And it's like, they visibly don't have chemistry. <laughs> they don't. They really don't. And it's painfully awkward. It makes the uh, one big sex scene even more just, ugh. Like, really? Listen, I love that we get to have stupid movies now just like straight people, but come on. Right. We should want better for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I think the movie that we're talking about today is a sharp contrast in terms of that. I think the movie we're talking about today would, today, today <laughs> would give these people a heart attack. No doubt. Yeah, there has been a recent round of reignited sex scene discourse, which is always like 15-year-olds who watched Oppenheimer with their parents or who watched Red, White, and Royal Blue with their aunt got freaked out because they saw a boob. <laughs> Here's a suggestion. Watch the movies by yourself while you're watching shit with your parents. Stop that. Enough. I try not to wade into those waters 
because I assume that it's mostly that it's youth, but it's difficult sometimes because it's like the same talking points over and over, like the tide coming in. And it always has like a lot of traction. It feels like it always, you know, if somebody posts about call me by your name, you're three seconds away from somebody quote tweeting it and being like, it's a pedophile book. Meanwhile, half that shit is getting retweeted by Republicans. So, you know, all these people just walked into sealing their own fate. Just trying to comment a movie with some, uh, what was the thing that I was saying? Oh, Rachel Ziegler. They're dumping Mm -hmm. on Rachel Ziegler because she's basically been like nonstop shading her role in Snow White and Disney and everything else. Yeah, she said she only seen the movie once when she was a kid because she was scared of it. It's like, that's perfectly valid. And like, whose life is being ruined because she didn't like Snow White? God forbid. A movie that I talk about a lot, The Last Jedi, stars Mark Hamill in his best dramatic on-screen performance of his career. And he hated the part. He hated the part. Like, that's it. That's all I'm saying. You know what I mean? And he still did a good job. You know, that's just professionalism. You show up, you do what your director tells you to do. You get the fuck out of there. Lots of actors do movies they dislike. Who gives yeah. a shit? You know what? I guess everybody on the cast of Make Two the Trench probably disliked it too, but you don't see anyone bad talking. <laughs> well, they can't because they're on strike, so they actually can't say anything about the movie. But I did also see Make Two the Trench. Meg 2.0, the Equal Trench. 2018's The Meg, which apparently you had no idea was such a big hit. I didn't see it myself. You know what I was surprised by was not that it was a big hit, was that it was such an extreme international hit, which is even more true of this one, I think. Yeah. It's basically a Chinese blockbuster in disguise. The first one came out during that really awkward period where there was a lot of Chinese-American co-productions Yeah, that were basically, oh, here's a movie almost completely set in China with just a couple of white people, and it's also in English. Ta-da. Mm-hmm. This one leans even more into it where it might as well be just 100% Chinese, except for... Jason Statham's bald head running around. Uh, so this takes place a couple of years after the events of the first film, and now there's not one Meg, not two Megs. There's three Megs, and they're about to eat anybody and everybody. I'm not going to describe too much on the plot because it is the stupidest fucking thing I'll ever watch. Um, it is entertainingly stupid. As a note, I saw this in 3D. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I think the first one played in 3D as well. You know, it's got okay. like that nice little bit of tackiness of, you know, like a shock jumping out of the water. Sort of like 2011 kind of vibe. Exactly, exactly. Like My Bloody Valentine, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but the opening scene takes place like 65 million years ago, and a dragonfly gets eaten by a lizard, and then that lizard gets eaten by another lizard, and then that lizard gets eaten by a bigger thing, and then that thing gets eaten by a T-Rex. Always a bigger fish. And then the Meg eats the T-Rex, and when it chomps down and drags it back into the water, blood splatters on the screen. <laughs> That's the kind of tackiness that we go for. And to be frank, it is a terrible movie, but did I enjoy watching it? Yes. Remind me who the director of this is? Oh, it's Mr. Ben Wheatley. That's right. <laughs> that makes sense. That man, I don't have a lot of directors where, okay, let me start this from a different vantage point here a little bit. Sometimes I see people grinding an axe with a specific director, and it can be somebody who's canonical, like Jean-Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. It could be somebody modern, like Robert Eggers. Who knows? Uh-huh. Ben Wheatley is one of my axe-grinding guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that he was before Rebecca, but after Rebecca, he was placed onto a pile of men that I don't trust. This is better than Rebecca, I'll say that. Wow. <laughs> Not that that's saying anything, really. No, it's but... low bar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't really like his in the woods, in the earth, in the dirt, I whatever did. the fuck that was called, COVID movie. I kind of like that. 
I liked the idea of it, mm-hmm. but I just never really found the atmosphere clicking. I haven't seen absolutely everything that he's done, but this is uh-huh. like a guy that tops out at the lightest of sixes, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, In the Earth, I do like, but in my mind, I was also comparing it to other pandemic movies, such as, you know, right, Songbird. Yeah. So when you compare it to that, it's like... Ben Wheatley's Malcolm and Marie. <laughs> God. That is a movie no one has thought about since 2020. It's fine. No one has thought about that movie since the night it dropped, let's be real. <laughs> you know what? There's a quick new release I want to shout out because we missed one when we were making our list before this that mm. we both saw, that I saw a little bit early, and that is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles oh, yeah, Mayhem, the latest animated cute, film. Yeah, uh, I don't really have like a ton to say about it. I think once upon a time we were talking about Transformers, probably because you brought up Rise of the Beasts. And what I yep. said was that Transformers kind of before my time, uh-huh. 80s cartoon, it's a little after my time, Michael Bay. And I really think Ninja Turtles falls into that too. Like yeah. The original 80s cartoon was still going on in the, like, the mid-90s, but it was just something that was a little bit older than me. Mm-hmm. Just didn't really get into it. Never got into any of the later stuff. So they're not characters that I have a great deal of investment in. In fact, they're characters that I have no investment in. Same. I've only <laughs> ever really known them as like birthday balloon characters, like like right. a birthday party theme. Like that's all I've ever really known them to be. One of my best friends in high school had like a little hangout room we would <laughs> chill in. And he had a clock that was Michelangelo with the orange mask. Uh, and it was a pizza and it was like it's pizza time. <laughs> it's like and that's sort of my association with them as well. It's like a joke about pizza. That sounds like what they should be. But this new movie I thought was really creative. Yeah. Fielded a lot of comparisons to the into the Spider-Verse art style because it's using 3D animation to do more 2D styles. But I think that it really branches out and finds its own tone and you mm-hmm. know humor with all the big sketchy lines and the character designs where like the people of New York in this movie look more disgusting and weird than the mutants do. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated how this looked like some 15-year-old's ugly drawings come to life, you know, like whatever sure. they're sketching in their notebook at school. The doodle on the outside of a locker in Sharpie. Exactly. Let's see if I can remember. Is it unwritten it is that is the song that played yeah. and the shock i felt when you said you couldn't remember the name of it but you know we live well so this the fucking soundtracks got 30 bangers on it it's kind of the most memorable thing is that seth rogan or whoever put together like a really strong hip-hop playlist yeah the seth rogan influence is all over this thing of course he was a producer he wrote it or co-wrote it to be precise he stars as the character Bebop. And mm-hmm. what I found funny about that is that he didn't really sound like Donkey Kong Seth Rogen. He sounded like Bernie from the Fablemans. Oh my God. He's just slowly starting to sound more and more just like a Jewish dad. This <laughs> <laughs> is great. Uh... A couple notes on the voice acting. One, all four of the turtle characters are played by teenagers. That's the most spider verse part of it. Shamik Moore, the actor who plays Miles Morales, was not a teenager, but just did a very good job in that voice performance of giving you a Miles that felt like he was about 15 years old. And that's something mm-hmm. that I think works really well with the performances here and makes a lot of the jokes that could fall really flat, feel organic, feel like they're coming from this group of young brothers. And then yeah. Paul Rudd, 
plays a fairly minor character called Mondo Gecko, who I think left the biggest impression on me because he's just like a sweetheart. Yeah, I also really loved Ice Cube as this film's <laughs> big bad. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly. This movie has a stacked cast. Stacked. Insane when you go through the support thing. Just to name it off, Ayo Itabri from The Bear, yep. Maya Rudolph, John Cena, Seth Rogen, of course, Rose Byrne, Giancarlo Esparcido, Jackie Chan plays Splinter, mm-hmm. Post Malone, Hannibal Buress, that uh, YouTube guy, Mr. Beast, <laughs> is in it for a split second. <laughs> yeah, that's right, he is. But yeah, fun movie, nice and tight, you know? It's like 90 minutes. Yeah. It's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's not trying to do a bunch of like mm-hmm. legacy shit. It's not trying to be this huge meta commentary on the genre. It's an adventure. Mm-hmm. And I think it works because it's like that. It's nice, short, simple, and sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, like a good slice of pizza. Yep. Now, you know what movie should have been 90 minutes? What's that? But instead was inexplicably 118 minutes long. Oh. Is the latest horror film to come out. Our second vampire film of the year. Yeah, both Universal films, both Dracula films. Yeah. Pray to God, third time's the charm next year. (laughs) The Last Voyage of the Demeter or Demeter. Which one is it? I've always said Demeter, but I'm not Greek, so I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so this is based off not Dracula, but a single specific chapter of the novel. The captain's log when Dracula is going over from Transylvania to London. And it's all about the crew and they're all on board carrying all these boxes of dirt. And they have no idea that they have a certain guest on board. Right. Who wants to suck their blood? Yeah. So, trying to figure out where do I want to start? Book or alien? Book or alien? Let's go with alien. Because okay. that's more or less the premise. It's alien on a boat yeah. with Dracula in place of the xenomorph. Which should get you like three stars and probably three and a half stars out of me if you just do a decent job. If you just mm-hmm. pitch it right down the middle, that should work. Yet, uh... I didn't even review this movie because I struggled to put into terms exactly why it wasn't working. I think, one, I don't like the Dracula design. Oh, see, I do. I like humanoid bat freak. I appreciate the thought behind it. He's gross, but it just felt it was such a like 2000s-esque. So apparently this movie's been in production forever. The original draft was written in 2002, which explains the early 2000s feel of that. It feels like Van Helsing, yeah. I mean, this movie literally has the DreamWorks logo in front of it in case you want it to feel like any more of a throwback than it already is. (laughs) Yeah. Decent to good atmosphere, Mm -hmm. but just... I mean, it's a boat. You put some fog. You know, it's impossible to fuck up. And yet... Somehow they did. I think by trying to add, like, all these different emotional arcs for the various members of the crew, I think that is the weak spot. I don't care about the captain and... His grandson, the come on, come on kid with the goofy British accent. That's (laughs) actually his real accent. I think that just makes come on, come on all the more impressive that he's a little (laughs) British kid. And I never would have guessed that in a hundred years. Yeah, I didn't even realize it was him until after I had seen this movie. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) This is second role. Yeah. Gotta get a paycheck somehow, right? So on the book note of things, I guess I'll just make a transition to a movie. If we look at Herzog's Nosferatu, which is the one that I know the best personally, Mm -hmm. the way that this scene is executed in that movie, you don't see, I mean, you see they're loading up the boat with the coffins full of dirt. Jonathan Harker's been subdued for a minute. I think he's been pushed out of a window or something. Dracula's getting onto the boat. You see the boat take off and it's like from overhead and it's playing some, you know, the music that goes in that movie. It's all moody and shit. And then Mm -hmm. you just see an 
empty boat come into the harbor, it like clangs right off the side of the dock, and everybody's like, whoa, 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 what the fuck? And they bring the boat in, and then a bunch of rats go off, off the gangplank. And then mm-hmm. you read the ship's log, and you're like, everybody died, what the fuck? And that's yeah. more or less how it goes in the novel. You and I were talking about this earlier, because it's a novel that is all based in correspondence, letters, in this case, a captain's log. And so it's like, so the captain's log is written as a captain's log would be from the yeah. first person. But by mm-hmm. the time you're reading it, it's like everybody's already gone. Like the thing has already happened. It's already transpired. Yeah. You don't watch it happen as you would in an ordinary novel or film. Right. Which is not to say that you can't make something cool and interesting out of it or something just fun and pulpy out of it. But I really mm-hmm. do think that it violates the key idea of like how it functions in dracula yeah i mean the idea of this boat just washing up with a completely dead crew right and rats fleeing it is infinitely more creepier than anything this movie could have done like that's terrifying it's a bunch of empty coffins rats mm-hmm. and no crew and you're like what? yeah that's terrifying something that this movie really can't achieve i do wish that this movie had leaned more into just the pulpiness of it all just be fun. Yeah. I enjoyed how when Dracula would suck people's blood in this movie, mm-hmm. he was like thirsty. He was like, uh, you know, running off the soccer field and chugging an entire Gatorade. Yeah. And it just very messy at it, too. Like just ripping throats <laughs> open mercilessly. Actually, I really do love the sequel hook to this movie is kind of psychotic. But I don't know. What would you call the next one? Like the last, last voyage? Or I don't know. I like that it's implied that Dracula can transform he can mutate to make himself look human because in this movie he looks like a giant humanoid bat monster and you see him in england of course at the end of the movie because you know spoiler alert for a movie based off of one of the most popular novels ever written dracula makes it to england and he's in there in the pub and he's got like the cane and his top hat and his coat and the whole time the movie they've been like oh he can make himself look human and it's like no he's just ugly enough to blend in with the rest of england They're all so ugly, they can't tell the difference. (laughs) Uh, I saw The Last Voyage of the Demeter as a double feature with a movie that I disliked so much that I almost felt like I had been too harsh to The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Uh, (laughs) It's a movie so bad with a trailer so long that Cole, Cole who has seen every movie of the 365 Days trilogy and every other bullshit awful movie of the last I don't know how many years, (laughs) skipped this. That's how bad it is. You well, just it's not skip. even technically out yet. What you saw was like a special preview because oh. they're dragging this thing's release out like <laughs> you were funny. just slowly putting it into a wood chipper. It's painful. The auditorium was only one third full. So I really wasn't aware Ooh. that it was an early screening. Usually when you go to one of those, they're sold out. Yeah, this was, well, they delayed it, of course, because of the strikes. And then they said, well, the cast can't promote it, but the audiences can. Uh, yeah, what audience, honey? Uh-huh. <laughs> what audience? But yeah, no, every year I give myself a skip if there's a movie that just looked so bad, mainly because of the trailer, I'll just skip it. So like last year, it was Amsterdam. The year before that, it was Ghostbusters Afterlife. Before that, it was yesterday, that Beatles movie about how the Beatles are, you know, God's gift to man or whatever. <laughs> and uh, we haven't even said the name of the damn movie yet. It's the fourth film by legendary South African director Neil Blomkamp, Gran Turismo. <laughs> yeah, I saw it on a lark. You know, I decided that I was going to go see The Last Voyage of the Demeter. I was looking at the other showtimes, and my options were, like, you know, the Meg 2, 
think there were a couple other things playing. Could have seen Sound of Freedom, of course, which is now opening internationally. It's going to make $14 overseas. Hmm. But this was showing, as you said, it was the advanced screening thing in Dolby. And I was like, fuck it. Sure, why not? You know, and uh-huh. um, it's the story of a gamer who became a racer. Shocking. Impossible. No way. Can't be done. Based on a real life story of the Gran Turismo Academy, where they took a few of the best players in the world, trained them up, made them into race car drivers. And then he killed five people. Which is in the movie. It is? Which I was astonished by. <laughs> I, I just, it's, um, yeah, it's quite ineptly made. It's never exciting. It feels very quaint to the point of silly now, because while, yes, this is based on a real person. I mean, it's exaggerated to all shit like a movie would be, right? Mm-hmm. But playing in 2023, you're like, dude, if you're one of the 10 best video game players at any video game, Pick one. I don't give a fuck. You're a streamer and you make a lot of money doing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there's like that layer of it. But mainly what I actually left thinking was that this is air. This is just another one of the brand movies that we've been getting this year. The brands are in this case, Nissan, who make the cars, Mm -hmm. and then Sony, the Sony PlayStation Gran Turismo's video game. It's like negatively inspired. It makes the Mario movie feel like it is rich with the lore of the characters in that world. Mm-hmm. Like by comparison, it is an empty void. Oof. It's not the worst movie I've seen this year, yeah. but it's close. Who knows? Maybe I'll watch this when I'm like blackout drunk or something. But I think this one might be my rare skip this year. There's just nothing fun. Nah, that stinks. I was making the Mario comparison. I really think that's probably the one because mostly what you're maybe your haunted mansion, because mostly what you're going to be thinking about is how often you are looking at those two logos in spite of the fact that the character and the, you know, rise glory, mm. all that stuff is about a guy who eventually had a pretty pitiful racing career and then committed vehicular manslaughter. Oh, God. I mean, it sounds like I got the movie he deserved. David Harbour, fuck. What are uh, you doing? Actually, no, I can't say that. That's a story for another time, maybe off recording. <laughs> <laughs> One of the filmographies of all time. Uh, so from that bad double feature, I will talk about a much better one. One that I just did yesterday at the Texas Theater mm-hmm. between two of cinema's great visionary auteurs defining landmark filmmakers. Akira Kurosawa and Tim Burton. <laughs> uh, talk about filet mignon and McDonald's. <laughs> some of the best McDonald's you've ever had, and also some of the worst, just depending on which side of the tray you're pulling <laughs> from with Tim Burton. Yeah. The two movies that I saw yesterday were Yojimbo, which I mm-hmm. saw in 35mm, nice. and then Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which mm. they were screening in honor of the late Paul Rubens. Mm-hmm passed away and that's also nice little synergy because that movie is all about going to san antonio to the alamo so it's a nice (laughs) texas movie yeah always something very fun about getting to do that Mm. yojimbo if you've never seen it watch it it's pretty much the basis of fistful of dollars and therefore every spaghetti western ever made Mm -hmm. and most of the samurai action movies that were made throughout the 60s 70s you know, really follow its template more than you would say that they follow the template of like Rashomon or Seven Samurai yeah. because it's the Ronin 
wandering into the town. You got two gangs on either side of it, and he's playing them against the middle. It's Toshiro Mifune creating a character archetype with ease, mm-hmm. just by scratching the back of his head, walking around. Our guy from the human condition, who will come up again in just a second, I'm sure, Tatsuya Nakadai. Mm. After watching him in the human condition, where he plays Kaji, mm-hmm. just like his breakout performance and his like very honorable and everything gets murky and difficult as he's going through the war it was really nice settling back into this where he's doing the thing that god put him on this earth to do which was Mm. to be a sneering evil bastard Mm. just fucking brandishing his gun and shooting people and causing all sorts of mayhem such a fun movie like oh god so funny it's probably the funniest kurosawa i think yeah it's up there It's got, like, the most jokes. It's got, like, the funniest tone outside of maybe, like, Hidden Fortress with those two guys. Yeah. The two peasant guys. R2 and C3PO. (laughs) Long time ago in a country far, far away. Just tell you guys, this dude inspired everybody. Including Ennio Morricone with the just incredible score to Yojimbo. And Mm. I just wanted, like, the opening credits of this movie, I think, are as great as you know high gold from the good the bad and the ugly where it's just Mm. just this epic feeling that rises up in your chest you just know that you're about to watch one of the coolest movies ever made and then it's really kind of like stately and talky i watched a bunch of other the texas theater is doing a i think they're calling it spaghetti samurai it's a combination of leone westerns they're doing the great silence by sergio corbucci and then some samurai movies, including Harakiri, Yojimbo, as I've mentioned. They're going to mm-hmm. do Sword of Doom next week. So I actually watched all of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, which are oh, from the nice. early 70s. Super mm-hmm. like splattery Tarantino inspiration, mm-hmm. kind of ladies' snowblood stuff. Yeah, I've been meaning to see those for a while. They're fun. I didn't rate a single one of them over three stars, but they're all fun. And going from those back to Yojimbo's, like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like watching the guy who made fucking seven samurai make this type of movie and it just leaning into all his crowd pleasing instincts and abilities is really really cool Mm. also just like a sold out screening pretty much which was great for a sunday afternoon yeah as far as peewee's big adventure that's a movie that i've seen a bunch of times it's actually one of my favorite burton movies like top four or something like that Mm. something that's kind of clear with the last voyage of the demeter is that that is a movie that should be working for me based on all the pieces of it, right? It's like nautical Mm -hmm. Dracula alien. Yes, all of that. The fact that it didn't work is pretty damning of how well everything came together. Pee-wee's big adventure is Paul Rubens being the most manic, loud. (laughs) There is no plot. There is no coherence. It just goes from bit to bit to Mm -hmm. bit. It should be deeply irritating it should not work at all but it makes me laugh for the duration which is the ultimate proof that everything is coming together and everything Mm. is working i actually also saw peewee's big adventure on sunday it was the first time i had seen anything involving the character of Wee herman (laughs) in any capacity you know like he was just before my time and i had only really known paul rubens as like the penguin's dad and batman returns (laughs) like extremely (laughs) minor stuff like that and I didn't like laugh out loud, but I did chuckle a lot. Mm-hmm. 
His dedicated physicality to the role is extremely impressive. Every single stunt and antic he's got to pull is like almost Keaton-esque. Yeah, absolutely. And when I compare someone to Buster Keaton, that's high praise. Obviously not a character another human on this planet could do. Nope. (laughs) It's completely singular. And meeting with Burton at the apex of what he was bringing to the table throughout the 80s. There's just a lot of energy in the productions, bringing it to life, bringing it to the big audience. Was this Burton's feature like debut? Uh, hmm, good question. 85? I mean, it sounds like it is. Yeah, it is his feature-length debut. Hell of a debut. And then Beetlejuice was 88. Frank and Weenie and Vincent are both earlier short mm-hmm. films that he made. Yeah, that's pretty much all I had. That was another one that was really, really full, Mm -hmm. though, which I think was accounting to the fact that it was a memorial screening, kind of, and the locality of it. Yeah. Another quick shout, I won't talk necessarily about the movie, but the night before that, I actually saw RoboCop in Mm. theaters, a 4K screening of that film, which is another, you know, that movie's set in Detroit, but it is filmed almost entirely in Dallas. And when you've been living here for as long as I have, you can just like, oh, there's the Reunion Tower. Mm. There's the downtown skyline. There's the Bomb Factory music venue. <laughs> like, there's just a million little places that you will recognize in the movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just, I mean, I love that movie. So yeah, that movie rocks. Got a couple little one-two punch of Texas stuff in theaters <laughs> this weekend. Nice. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that not only did we both see Pee Wee Herman on the same day, Yes. We also both saw Kurosawa films on the same day. Kurosawa and Burton, the two greats. <laughs> interesting pair. I'll say that, an interesting <laughs> pair. But you saw Yojimba, which is, you know, like this light, yeah. fun, you know, little samurai action adventure. Wait, are both of yours from the same year? Oh, hell yeah, they They're are. They're both from 85. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you saw like the light, fun samurai action movie. I right. saw what's possibly the bleakest thing ever put to celluloid. Mm, mm. So over at the New Beverly, they were playing on 35mm Akira Kurosawa's Ron, mm. which is a adaptation of King Lear. When he was writing it, he actually wasn't aware of the similarities. And then when he was told about the play, he wrote it to make it even more similar. Oh, cool. But yeah. So Ron is a Hiratora Ichimonji, a lord of a great kingdom who spent decades killing and plundering and slaughtering to build up his iron throne and just rules over everything like a great tyrant. And of course, as he's getting on in years, he decides to divide the kingdom between his three sons, Taro, Hiro, and Saburo. And Saburo, the youngest child, doesn't think that this is a great idea, calls his father out on his foolishness. And so in a rage, Hidetora banishes him from the kingdom. But if you've seen a production of King Lear, or if you've read it in high school, or if you've watched Succession, <laughs> you know where this is going. Right. All these children who were raised in evil cannot be good people. Right. And so we watch the once great king descend to madness and lose everything. Once again, Tatsuya Nakadai, the boy. So good in this. He's flat out incredible. It's a completely different type of performance i think one obviously because he's being made up to be a man in his 80s mm-hmm, yeah it's an older performance here in the 1980s he's 30 years older than he was making the human condition at there at the end of the 50s but yeah. then he's also in all this old man makeup so it's like very contemplative and reflective already just by casting him yeah and it's dramatic makeup you know it's like inspired by no mm-hmm, theater heavily. like his face is very expressive and mask-like 
actually said he was inspired by how he thought Toshiro Mifune would have played the role because Toshiro was the original pick for the part. And even though all those years later, after Red Beard, he was like, I'm still never working with Kurosawa again. Sorry. <laughs> I think Nakadai is the better pick for this character. I would agree. Not that I think that Mifune would in any way beef it. I'm sure that if he did it, we would all have the same rating for it that we mm-hmm. currently have. We wouldn't second guess it and be like, they should have gotten Nakadai right. for this. But having seen it be him, I just think it's better. Agreed. The other big Kurosawa Shakespeare mm-hmm. movie is my favorite of the two, which is Throne of Blood maybe speaks all of my favorite Kurosawa Mm -hmm. stuff is like black and white. I don't really know. I think I could get into why I think the sort of abstract, you know, when the blood spray is like thick black oil Mm -hmm. on like the white paper partitions, there's just a certain feel and a vibe, but Mm -hmm. that's Mifune, right? And that's Mifune as a Shakespearean slash samurai warlord who is clouded by the ambition and doing all these different things but there's an essential sort of like oh it's the fool like he's being blinded he doesn't see what he's doing whereas with nakadai he brings in this kind of viciousness this kind of like you believe him as the Mm -hmm. warlord who would cut off one of his son's heads if he thought that he was in the right to do it he's a far more unsympathetic character than you know for example king lear ever was yes and that's exactly it Like, Nakadai can channel your empathy, and eventually he does. And that's really the great magic trick, is that once he goes into madness, the performance radically changes. Mm -hmm. And you know which character in this film does the opposite of that, with the empathy at first, and then you find out just what a fucking monster they are. (laughs) Lady Kaede, who's played by Miyako Harada, she is the wife of the oldest son, and... Since everything's like basically gender swapped here compared to King Lear, she's playing the role of Edmund, you know, greedy, power hungry. Now her father and all of her brothers were murdered by Hiratora when she went to go marry Taro. And the shame of that caused her mother to commit suicide. So you can understand why she might want some revenge on Hiratora, mm-hmm. but she, outside of like the obvious picks of, you know, like, the Wicked Witch, Darth Vader, Reverend Harry Powell, you know, the Disney peanut gallery. She is the greatest villain in movies. Mm, I love the take. Point blank period. I've always been on her side. I'm like completely, <laughs> like obviously the degree of destruction in this movie is just fucking heinous. She basically causes the apocalypse. But at the same time, she can only cause it because of who she's doing it to. She pulls mm-hmm. the thread. They're the ones who unravel, and in their unraveling, cause a war that destroys their family. And there are images in this during the big battle sequence where you're seeing the army of the second brother, who is denoted by the color red, and his soldiers are just being like taken off, and it's all in slow motion while the score is mm-hmm. going, and they're you know just being blasted off of their horses. It's got to be like. 200 millimeter, maybe 100 millimeter lenses because you're really fucking zoomed in and it looks like sports photography almost. And it's just war has never looked less glamorous, but also like picturesque and beautiful. It's a perfect dichotomy because it's so gorgeous, but it's also just mournful and grim. Yeah. The colors in this movie are insane. Mm -hmm. For example, the older brother's yellow, the middle brother's red, the youngest brother's blue. And Of course, you have the beauty of the sky and all these green fields. And then you have these castles that are built on the side of volcanoes. Like the big scene in this is when the third castle 
that Hidetora goes to stay at right. is ransacked by the first son. And of course, everyone dies and you see Hidetora's soldiers basically ripped apart by arrows. There's blood everywhere. There's a guy holding his severed arm. And it's the most horrifying thing you'll ever see in your life. But also it finds the beauty and all this horror. And as a matter of fact, the film itself was inspired, you know, tying it back a little bit by the aftermath of Hiroshima and that bomb dropping, because all Kurosawa thought about for all the advancements of the 20th century, all people had learned was how to kill each other better. Mm -hmm. And there's guns in this movie. Unlike, you know, a lot of samurai films, there's guns being used left and right, taking people out. Mm -hmm. It's very much the end of a certain era. And reflecting on its consequences, it's like this idea that's right at the very beginning where Saburo is really chastising his father because he's saying, you created a strong dominion through war. You cannot maintain mm -hmm. it through peace. You cannot maintain it through love. You weren't going to get through 80 years of your life as a violent warlord and then suddenly say like, all right, now we're all one happy family. Yay. <laughs> violence begets violence and all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. Like that's, right. hello. <laughs> It's a circle of mutually assured destruction in which mm -hmm. there are basically no survivors, except for poor Lord Sumaru. It's an interesting case of a film where you like it more than I do, but it's a very sentimental movie, which might seem weird because I think we're describing it in these dark tones, but I think it's palpably sentimental, in my opinion, in this very remorseful way mm -hmm. but as i was thinking about it particularly as i was editing up our most recent nolan episode the way that you talked about the prestige the way that you've talked about vertigo this is a portrait of kurosawa this is a portrait of the sun setting on his career and his legacy mm -hmm. it's not the last movie that he ever made he actually made a later one with richard gear which i saw <laughs> earlier in the year yeah he still had a few left in him even though he was going blind during the production of this so they had to call in the great Ishiro Honda to film the action mm. sequences. Director of Godzilla. Yep. Little creature feature you might have heard of. You know, when you say the nuclear element to this, and then we think about him being on there, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh -huh. a lot of lenses starting to come together mm -hmm. to form an image here. I think this movie has three credited cinematographers on it. Yeah, and it is like the most stunning thing you've ever seen in your life. Every color is so vibrant, so yeah. overpowering. So... Our Yojimbo 35mm print was pretty, I mean, it is old. You could tell that it had the wear and tear and the subtitling particularly you could tell was from decades ago, probably mm -hmm. the 80s, maybe the 70s. Yeah. And you could also tell that it was on safety film. Mm -hmm. That's nerd shit, but I can usually tell the difference <laughs> between actual nitrate and safety film. There is a difference in the look. In spite of the age, that's just such a fucking good looking movie that you mm -hmm. just get into it and it's so crisp and the shadows and the textures. I was just going to ask how the print was for your run. Was it something that's kind of battered and scratchy or pretty clean? It was a little scratchy in some spots, but it was actually a newer print. It was struck in 2010. Oh, okay, cool. So it still looked really damn good. Yeah, we get a fair mix. You know, mm -hmm. when I saw Michael Mann's Manhunter, mm -hmm. that was beat to shit. When I saw Dead Ringers, that was beat to shit. When I saw Seven Samurai, it was the most gorgeous thing I had ever seen. Mm. Yeah. We've actually now both then gotten to see our favorite three-hour Akira Kurosawa samurai epic in 35mm in theaters nice. this year. Yeah. So Blessings. basically the thing about this movie is if it wasn't for the exception of a certain French film made in 1939. Yes. Octave and his merry band of hunters. <laughs> 
I would call this the single greatest film ever made. Where was this? Where did you move it to? And where did you move it from? on your all-time list it went from four to two so like it was already extremely high but i knew it was top 10 i didn't quite realize it was four yeah this is just like the ultimate movie for me just in its depiction of humanity and both its beauty and its sorrow its misery yeah oh my god that score and surround Mm. Ugh. good enough to bear the uncomfortable seats at the new beverly cinema Yeah, Quentin, if you're listening, (laughs) just listen. I got some notes. Like, come on, we can fix this. Uh, But it's worth it to see a full-sized castle that was built on the side of Mount Fuji get ransacked and then burnt to the ground. Hell yeah. I love it. Akira Kurosawa is not a director who I often will brandish in a conversation about who are your favorite directors because, like Bergman, I haven't seen everything that he's made, but it just feels like stupidly obvious like everybody knows you know he's like such a known classic director i mean everyone knows that he's like the master i mean even spielberg lucas and coppola all did you know martin scorsese in dreams as vincent van gogh right Mm -hmm, right but you watch the movies and it's like yeah yeah (laughs) that's true it's just obvious it just smacks you right in the face what a delight to get to see his movies in theaters so like in that way great that he's so essential i'm actually sort of looking forward to next month they're doing a complete kubrick retrospective so probably have some more notes on good little repertory screenings Mm -hmm. before we hop over to passages i want to shout out one other name sort of akin to paul rubens who passed away as a even more recent passing of the legendary new hollywood director of movies such as the exorcist and the french connection william friedkin who I've always had a little bit of like a loose appreciation, uh, maybe a little bit of a complicated relationship with. Mm-hmm. That's sort of an odd note to start off a memorial statement with. I mean, it's more respectful than what most people have ran. Yeah, I, I'm not going to bullshit anybody. I love the French Connection. Good. Doesn't get better than that for me. One of the great car chases ever, mm-hmm. as everybody will tell you. Never been a big fan of The Exorcist. It's solid. Uh, it's good. It's good. It's a good movie. Max von Sydow. You know, that one shot that's on the poster uh-huh. with the tubular bells. It's great good stuff. Phenomenal. Great makeup, great yeah. effects, you know. Ellen Burstyn. She's fantastic. Like, fantastic. so good. But, you know, it's just like, I don't know, the Catholic stuff doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, I could get deep into the weeds about why Catholic horror, I think, maybe isn't quite my brand of, like, religious strife. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really click for me. I think a big part of The Exorcist has always been that I am a extreme devotee of Rosemary's Baby, which I had mm. seen many, many, many times and read a couple of times as well. That's a lot better, yeah. The Exorcist has always existed in the shadow of that movie for me. And that novel between the two books, The Exorcist. But anyway, anyway, enough of that. Yeah, I mean, it's also just to say, like, the demon's name and The Exorcist is the stupidest fucking thing you've ever heard. <laughs> Azuzu. Who's going to be scared of that? Get real. Get real. Who's scared of that? Not me. But he's a director that a lot of my friends like. He's a director that a lot of people online have admiration for and a director where a lot of his stuff I hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. Things that maybe looked like they would be more my speed, including the movie that I watched on the day of his passing, Mm -hmm. which was Sorcerer, starring Roy Scheider. Sorcerer, as you may know, if you have seen it, is a light remake of Henri-Georges Clouseau's 1953 masterpiece, The Wages of Fear. 
And while there are many differences in Friedkin's version in a synopsis terms, it is incredibly similar. Mm -hmm. A group of people from across the world are all in a shoddy little South American town where they all have work, but not enough work to really earn any kind of proper living. Mm -hmm. And they can't afford a plane ticket to get to a different part of the country or a passport to get out of the country. And what this leads to is a situation where four of them are hired to be drivers for a truck that needs to transport dynamite from one point of the country in the mountains to another point in the country. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the dynamite sticks have been sitting out, they haven't been turned, they're leaking, Uh and even just the littlest tap rumble is going to set them off and make them explode. So in their desperation, these four drivers accept large salaries to transport the nitroglycerin from one point to another point, just like they do in Wages of Fear. You saw this for the first time, too. What did you think of it? Um, so I think this one's very solid, you know, just a good rollicking 70s new Hollywood thriller. That's maybe my favorite thing about Freakin is that he never really abandoned the 70s. Yeah, for sure. In a way that so many of his contemporary directors did. Like this guy was making 70s movies all the way up until the end. Yeah. De Palma's kind of that way, I feel like as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, De Palma's kind of older because it's the Hitchcock stuff, but he never lets go of that style that he likes. Yeah, never abandons it. But yeah, I like this movie. It's cute. But cute next to gorgeous, you know, gorgeous is going to devour cute. I'm sure that there are many people who find the unique pleasures of sorcerers to be better than Wages of Fear, but I am surely not one of them. Me neither. You know, the 70s thing like you're talking about, it's a color film versus the black and white of the original. There's a lot more on-location shooting, not only in South America, but we go to different parts of Europe. We're in Paris, Veracruz at one different point. Mm -hmm. We're in New Jersey at one point. So we get a lot more of a sweaty, gritty detail. In particular, the comparison, so like Wages of Fear is sort of like a Casablanca, only angels have wings, Mm -hmm. where it's the studio lot. And, you know, it's really held together by the actors, yeah. which I think in that context works really well because it makes everything feel very claustrophobic. Like, I got to get the fuck out of here. It does. Anything to get me out of this town versus this is like sweaty kind of apocalypse now mm-hmm. sort of vibes. Where it surprisingly fell off for me was in the part where they're transporting the dynamite. I kind of agree, honestly. The thing in Wages of Fear is that Cluzo, as a director is all about minute details. If you watch Diabolique, there's a scene where two women have to carry a man in a basket. Mm -hmm. And when he filmed that, he actually had a person sit in the basket so you would see the strain of the two women trying to hold it up so that you would see the basket contort under the weight. And that is who he is as a director. He really wants you to block Mm -hmm. all these different little visual details. And so when he has two truck drivers in a truck transporting nitroglycerin, you never forget that they are transporting nitroglycerin. You feel like the breeze shifting the wrong way Mm-mm. is going to make them explode. Yeah. And that's a two and a half hour movie. So for like two hours, you are just gripping the couch like fuck. It keeps you tense. It never lets you relax. Because even when they stop, you're sort of like, yeah, and now there's another truck barreling at them with nitroglycerin in it because <laughs> there are the two. Versus in the Friedkin one, it's like the centerpiece on the poster is they're on that big rickety bridge. Mm-hmm. And the fucking bridge is like tilted sideways. And it's like a big, exciting scene, kind of, because mm-hmm. it's just like so grandiose. But you completely lose the realism, not, not even the realism, but like the kind of 
grounded, this is where the danger comes from. And I started thinking, like, if they were transporting bananas on this mountain, it would be exactly as dangerous. Yeah. Because the danger is the mountain. It's the environment. It's nature. That's what makes it so tense. Which I think it's pleasurable in its own way, but just never as exciting, never as tense, definitely a downgrade. And then the mm-hmm. big thing was that even though it spends a larger portion of its runtime on giving you like not just who the characters are, but their backstories, like we go and we see them living their lives, mm-hmm. none of the characters are as rich or as, I don't want to knock the acting, but like specifically the character played by Charles Vanell, who is the old mm-hmm. man who's like the gangster who is kind of living large and like puts people down and acts like a big guy. And then he gets into the truck with Montand in Wages of Fear and then it breaks him psychologically. Like he's just a wimp. And that mm. character is like the soul of that movie. And here he's just like replaced by some fucking guy. It's just some mm. random dude. Oh, well, but anyway. still good movie for all of our complaining. It is, it is, it is. It's just very difficult not to <laughs> when you're looking at something like that. But yeah, uh, one of my preferred Friedkins, one of my top tier Friedkins, mm. looks great. We always love Roy Scheider and stuff. You watched something that night too, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually. Time? Yeah, I had never seen it, so I was like, yeah, might as well. With a couple of my friends, I watched To Live and Die in L.A., mm. 1985. Stars William Peterson as a Secret Service agent who's assigned to hunt down counterfeiters in Los Angeles. And three days before his partner is due to retire, his partner is shot and murdered by this one counterfeiter played by Willem Dafoe. Yeah. He's so hot in this movie. <laughs> but this movie is just an incredible depiction of Los Angeles. Just in the grime and the sunlight and the neon, the traffic. <laughs> big episode for the films of 1985, actually. Yeah, Maybe. very big. Wang Chung on the score for this one. Lots of singles. No good. Just like driving synth beats all the time. Absolute banger. This was shot by Robbie Muller. Mm -hmm. He had recently, just the year before this came out, done Paris, Texas with Vim Vendors. I think Dean Stockwell is also in both of those, is in Paris, Texas, and is in this as well. Talk about a career. I watched this as a double feature. We did a Friedkin double, the movie I'll Mm. talk about next. But the two things that really stuck out for me were the car chase, just like the French Connection. I, You could have a podcast-length debate about which of the two car chases between To Live and Die in LA and the French Connection is the superior car chase. And I don't mm. think that you could really come to a right answer because they are both nope. fucking awesome. This guy just knew how to shoot around the car. You no, know, Sorcerer, obviously, it's everything is the truck. But even in the beginning, you've got the stuff with like Schreider gets into like the car wreck and there's mm-hmm. the fucking fire hydrant that's going off and everything right. in this one william peterson is trying to evade the cops and he has to race in front of a train mm-hmm. and he's going down in the reservoir and everything and he like crosses right over it right before it goes uh yeah. so cool and Love then the it. ending like i don't want to just jump to the ending but the ending of this had me like yo what the <laughs> fuck it's awesome i could not believe the way that this ended it's awesome <laughs> i really didn't have too many interesting thoughts about it because a lot of it's just sort of like go, 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 the rhythm, the picture, you know, we got mm-hmm. William Defoe and he's like counterfeiting the money and he's got the steel plate. And he the blows counterfeiting on it. scene is so cool. It's so cool. Yeah, this is probably the best looking Friedkin movie. I guess you could throw out The Exorcist because that's got a nice look to it. But I think that yeah. this is probably his best looking film. It's an incredible looking picture. Did you watch this one with anybody? Oh, yeah. A bunch of my friends. 
you know, we all got together to celebrate the life of William Friedkin. This is a really fun one with a crowd because it's got these moments that Mm -hmm. just draw out a lot of reactions. Yeah, especially the gunshot effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the squibs. You know, people's heads get blown off. (laughs) Definitely the movie that got William Peterson the role in Manhunter. Michael Mann, oh, yeah. just a couple years later, for sure, where he's just like, mm-hmm. I was not expecting this to be such an acidic cop movie. Yeah, I should have been, based on who was making the movie, William Friedkin, but I was really impressed by it in that regard. You know, it mm-hmm. starts off and it's like, the captain's three days from retirement. It's like the most cliched shit in the world, but then it actually yeah. gets into interesting material. Also, they're not cops. They're not detectives. They work for the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird, like, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. they just foiled an assassination attempt on Reagan. Oh, fuck them. <laughs> at the start of the film. Well, you know, not everyone's perfect. All you need to know about how good or how bad these guys are. I love, you know, I love a movie where we don't have to argue about the all cops are bastards thing because the characters in the movie are bastards. That's nice. Yeah. Truth nice in simple. cinema. The same night that I watched this, we also watched Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Ah, uh, yeah. Early 80s, never mm-hmm. seen it before. All four of these were new for me. Sorcerer, yeah. To Live and Die in L.A., Cruising. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, to make a connection to To Live and Die in L.A. and Willem Dafoe being hot, I don't know that there's a great heterosexual explanation for the films of William Friedkin. I don't think there is, which makes his career really fascinating. How this guy kind of inadvertently became like Hollywood's number one, like, hey, I'll make a movie for the gays director. yeah really strangely homoerotic filmography and this is probably the spearhead of that certainly from a notoriety standpoint because when cruising was first released it was basically bludgeon people were calling it homophobic obviously Mm -hmm. many people were uncomfortable with it because of its depiction of homosexuality so it was getting beaten up on both sides Mm -hmm. of course this is a film that stars al pacino who is an undercover cop who in order to capture a serial killer who seems to be targeting Italian twinks um, (laughs) that look like Al Pacino. Yeah, that works. He goes undercover to try to capture this killer, and in so doing, goes into the seedy heart of cruising culture at this time. Yeah. Just what a bold fucking movie for the director of The Exorcist to be making after The Exorcist. Listen, if anyone needs a definition for what the term cruising means, um, Google is free. Please use that. We will not explain. <laughs> we will also not explain what that thing is that Al Pacino sniffs in the <laughs> nightclub. Actually, this movie has my favorite William Friedkin story. When he was doing research for this movie, he went to a gay nightclub on jockstrap night. And by the end of the night, his only reaction is that he was highly offended that nobody hit on him. <laughs> this is a weird one for me. I think... The aesthetic of it is quite great. It's just got this sort of early 80s, very dusky, blue, purple, smoky, which complements all the sexuality. It heavily reminded me of Michael Mann's Thief Mm. in terms of the look, just kind of that cold mood. For as much as I appreciate the adventurousness and kind of the boldness of William Friedkin doing this film, I don't necessarily feel like he was ever the best voice for getting into the clear internalized homophobia that is going on with this lead character. I think it's obviously a little early to expect anything like super nuanced from an American film on all of this that wasn't like strictly an independent movie. But at the same time, it just sort of didn't quite get to all the layers of it. What I liked on Friedkin's end of it 
was how much it reminded me of the imagery of like a Kenneth Anger Scorpio rising. Yeah. Because the whole movie is just like, what if cops were fags? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just like a hundred guys in top uniforms and leather. And based off some of the people who have messaged me, they are. I, you know, <laughs> that part of it works really well. I think Pacino was a little bit difficult for me too, because even though it's more in his... I mean, it's post-Godfather and Godfather 2, but he's still in a very adventurous mode, and this is a brave role in some ways. But I also think it kind of no-homos him like a little bit too much. Yeah. And there's probably a lead actor where you could have gone to some more bold places. I do think the way that this movie tries to tackle internalized homophobia is a very fascinating way to take it. Absolutely. And maybe that was Freakin's best angle with this. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said... While I thought that this movie was good and kind of landed more in the middle of my Friedkin ranking, shortly after it, like a day or two later, I watched a movie which quickly vaulted to the very top or near the very top, which was another homosexual film by William Friedkin adapted from a stage play of the Mm -hmm. same name called The Boys in the Band. The Boys in the Band is, I mean, it's it's a stage play that's being converted into a film, almost the Mm -hmm. entire Thing takes place within the space of a, an apartment and the patio of that apartment. We are at the apartment of Michael celebrating the birthday party of Harold. Mm. And Michael is inviting over several of his friends, all gay men, to help celebrate this birthday. And in the midst of getting ready, first of all, an old flame slash friend of his, Donald, shows up, interrupts the whole thing. And we get introduced to these two characters. We get introduced to their personalities and maybe some of the foibles of the other members of the group and things that they make fun of each other for and things that they dislike each other for. Lots of drama in just the first few minutes of this. <laughs> this is really the type of shit. I love this Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? We just got everybody in a room and we just let them go. I was just about to say it. What happens when you make Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf where everyone is Elizabeth Taylor? Yes, yes. They're all just withering bitches. <laughs> Patty old queens. So suddenly Michael gets a phone call from an old schoolmate of his who is a heterosexual man who calls him breaking down nearly in tears saying, Michael, Michael, I have to talk to you. Tries to tell him, hey, I have a party. You shouldn't come over. But he's like, no, I really need to talk. So he's like, okay, come over. So we start to see how Michael is trying to keep these two things separated. He's got a straight man coming over to his apartment, which is currently full of gay men, and he's trying to get them to tone it the fuck down so as not to scare this guy off. And in so doing, we get into the shame and the internalized homophobia in a way that I think is familiar, rich, sad, Mm -hmm. funny, tragic. Just love this. Love this movie. I love that they're all color-coded. They got like the rainbow in the shirts. You got like a red, purple, green. Keeps it nice and simple for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> These men are gay. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> but yeah, no, I really dug this one. This one was also recently readapted into a Netflix film a couple of years ago, and that one's yeah. honestly pretty solid too. I think it's just great material to work with. Even if some mm-hmm. people complain that it's outdated now, I think in some ways it is still very, very relevant. I could certainly see how you could find certain of its characters stereotypical. Mm -hmm. I think that for its time, the character of Bernard, who is the lone Black character, could certainly use a greater degree of development. Of course. There is quite a lot of, I mean, it was offensive then, and it is now like unacceptably offensive. Racial language, the character of Harold is Jewish. That comes up Mm -hmm. in certain ways. 
there's a lot of it that, yeah, I could see how somebody would look at it and go like, wow, that's a dated relic. But to me, it speaks to attitudes that persist. And the entire idea of what Michael is going through and what all these men are going through in a more broad way mm-hmm. is the idea of discretion and concealment yep. and the things that are inside of you that you don't let outside, which might be your sexuality, or it might be bitchiness. It might be a little bit of rudeness. It might be a little bit of realness that comes out in these you know, Virginia Woolf-style dramas, because the idea is that you have these characters in a confined space colliding against each other, revealing these inner truths that are nasty, that are ugly, that aren't very nice, that don't make you feel good about yourself. And I like that kind of thing, personally. Yeah, I enjoy it, too. I think there's a truth to it that still stands. Mm -hmm. I ultimately, so this is sort of a movie of two halves. In the first half, you're really setting up the drama, and it's Mm -hmm. more comedic, it's a little bit lighter. And then in the second half, when that storm breaks out, everything gets a little bit more real. And I think as it moves into that half, you can start to see the seams a little bit. But when it's just kind of cooking and throwing all these pieces into the pot, starting to get the temperature going, I really thought that it was great. I love the yeah. character of Emery and that whole performance. Mm. Just the, the, the one straight man refers to him as a butterfly in heat. It's just like, okay. Uh, I mean, he's not wrong, but he shouldn't be the person in that room saying it. Uh, and then you realize how many of those attitudes are held by the gay men either about themselves about each other anyway just i thought really great movie this is probably my second favorite friedkin after the french connection mm, yeah it's up there for me for yeah. sure it was a real pleasure honestly to get to go through his stuff on some things i have reservations certain things that i really loved and appreciated but strong filmmaker never let anybody tell him what the fuck to do mm-hmm. especially not in an interview <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that interview where they're talking about the lifespan of DVDs. <laughs> like, well, fuck Oliver Stone and Alexander. <laughs> the fuck does he know? <laughs> yeah, a singular talent who will dearly be missed. Of course, I'm sure they're going to slap some kind of in memoriam on oh, the God. Exorcist believer. He's already spoken out about it. He would have fucking hated. There are clips where he's like, I'm not part of this. This sucks. <laughs> Unlike John Carpenter, he's not just like getting the free check and is like, fuck it, I don't care. All right, you some music. Yeah, no, he hated everyone, but also loved everybody at the same time. There was actually a really lovely interview with James Gray, the film director. Mm. And he talks about one that he went over to Freakin's house for dinner a couple of months ago. And he had a feeling that it was going to be the last time that he ever saw Freakin alive. And he just randomly blurted out, I love you over dinner. And this big, grouchy character just held the guy's hand that was like i love you too Mm, wow you know what i love about friedkin is that for all of his you know temperamental interview stuff he's always been very humble about his work and i think that he's selective about which films such as to live and die in la and the boys in the band that he praised and i think on other cases he would sort of be like yeah that one didn't really come out as well and i think that Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. There's a great reflection of that if you've ever seen the Nicholas Winding Refn interview that he did, <laughs> where he's talking about only God forgives. Uh, Is there a doctor in here? Oh, God. What a guy. One of the more underrated new Hollywood guys, but very fun to get to celebrate mm-hmm. him. You know, one of my favorite things about the boys in the band is that Freakin normally disliked a lot of his movies, you know, just off of the final products, but 
you often said that the boys in the band was one of his few films where he would he could happily go back and watch it anytime he was really really proud of that one which is you know about a bunch of bitchy gay men and then got a new i would call almost classic about bitchy gay men out in theaters now depending on where you live Mm. it is unrated it did get slashed with an nc-17 rating in a blatant act of homophobia by the mpaa just because of some sex but you know censors are gonna censor one of the actors in this film is adele x archopolis Mm -hmm. who is very notable for blues the warmest color but is also just very notable for like getting her tits out in every movie that she's ever been in. She's real for that. <laughs> she is, but it's an interesting thing because she's yeah. one of the three members of the sort of menage at the center of this movie mm-hmm. that was NC-17. So here I'm assuming I'm just about to watch a bunch of fucking, just a bunch of sex, and there's sex. Yeah. But this is a rated R film. It is. I'm glad that you brought this up because I had sort of forgotten that it was NC-17, but I remember getting 45 minutes into this 90 minute movie and going okay where does the nc-17 kick in i know where it kicks in for the censors but no no not unless you're you know a big karen or a pathetic little loser who's probably not having sex you know i mean i'm assuming the one on the mpaa is having sex (laughs) explain why they're miserable people (laughs) you know that didn't stop us from having a healthy crowd I went to see this at the Angelica Film Center, which is a theater that I very frequently rib. It's the AARP theater. Uh-huh. It's the place where you go and see a movie at five o'clock and there will be three other people in there and they're all collecting pension checks. <laughs> but this not only had a healthy crowd, but it had a much younger crowd than usual. So people are, in spite of that, getting out to see it, at least here, which I was yeah. encouraged by. Yeah, I had a good crowd and it was a good mix of both older people and younger people. I thought it at the landmark Newark over on Santa Monica. But the filming question we're talking about is Iris Act's new film, Passages. It's a French drama film, but, you know, mostly in English. And it follows this couple in contemporary Paris. You have Thomas, a German filmmaker played by Franz Rogowski, and the sluttiest little outfit you will ever see in your life. I have so many thoughts on this man. (laughs) (laughs) Only half of them can I say into a microphone to be recorded for later usage. I mean, you could say them. We just end up behind the Patreon paywall for $100. <laughs> I'm going to go start writing AO3 fanfic. I don't know. Oh, God, here we go. But he's married to Martin, this submissive little house husband played by Ben Wishon, you know, mm. Q, Paddington Bear, all these yep. other wallflowers. And one night during a party, he begins an affair with a young woman named Agathe, who's played by Adele Exarchopoulos. And he goes home to his husband the next day and he's like, guess what? I just had sex with a woman. Just says it. Just tweets it just out. no idea of half. <laughs> just no idea of like, any baby, kind of... I thought you'd be excited. Why are you so mad? He's like, every time you finish a film, this happens. <laughs> and we spend basically the next 90 minutes watching this torrid menage a trois just fall apart. Mm-hmm. Because all these people are so wrong for each other. They are really just feeding into each other's misery. I'm trying to figure out if Ben Wishaw is gay. Uh, pretty sure he is. He convinced me. <laughs> I'm like 95% sure he is. Yes, his partner's name is Mark Bradshaw, and they've been together since 2012. So yes, yes. This is my favorite Ben Wishaw performance by a sight. Same. And I don't dislike him by any means. I think that he's a good actor. But this, I mean, he's terrific here. Yeah. He might be the MVP, even over Rogowski, who I think is probably one of my favorite current working actors. Mm-hmm. 
well, Shaw's not someone who often gets like a showcase moment. Mm-hmm. So when something like this comes along, he really takes it and runs away with it. What I like about it here is that the showcase is for a type that I almost feel like he's established even through roles like Q where he's a little bit mousy. He's a little submissive. Mm -hmm. He's clearly an academic, you know, he hasn't really like changed the game up. It's just that they wrote a really nuanced part for this personality. And I think that he just brings a lot of it to life. There's a lot of it where, you know, of the two lovers between him and Rogowski, Tomas played by Rogowski, is the slut. Yeah. He's the one in the mesh where he's the one having sex with women, having sex with whoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Wishaw's kind of the home husband who's like, you know, you see him in his little robe, right? Yeah. He like takes it off and like gets under the covers and he's like looking over at Tomas while he's reading his book and he's like, mm, mm-hmm. no, okay. And he's like, all right, good night, click. You know, everything about him is just like so like passive yeah. because he's the less exciting one. Mm-hmm. He's the less interesting one. But I like that the movie does not take a stance of like, that means that he's boring. That means that he doesn't have characteristics. That means that he doesn't have hopes and dreams and desires and disappointments. I think that that's really, really well done Mm -hmm. on the part of both Saks and Wishaw. It's such a great film for adults in the same way that Raina Warner Fassbender films were back in the 1970s. This movie reminded me so much of films like The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Where there's just that quietness not everything is always going to become a conversation you just sort Mm -hmm. of get to watch someone react to somebody or like suppress their reaction in that opening Mm -hmm. scene well in the opening scene they're making the film called passages yeah and then in the following they're at a club celebrating the wrap of their shoot and you can already tell there's something wrong with these two guys ben's at the bar just like their chemistry is off they have the chemistry of people who have known each other for a long time care about each other who are attracted to each other, who are tender with each other, but there's something not right. And it's just the fact that you can get all those positive characteristics, but still tell that there's something not right. And that's just really well Mm -hmm. done throughout every level between those two characters specifically. It's a marriage that has already died and no one wants to admit it yet. Yeah, that was really what was sticking with me throughout it was that, I mean, they're both fucking bored. Yeah. And I don't know that Wishaw is like, bored but he's clearly you know you don't really get what the essential problems are but you can see that tomas is like i don't even know if this dude's in love with me Mm -hmm. i don't know that we have anything anymore and is almost acting out or lashing out Mm -hmm. in certain ways very dramatic ways too i even just think like i mean on some level the wardrobe is him and on another level it's sort of like I don't know. I'm going to come off a little Jonah Hill-esque here, maybe. Oh, God. Um, where it's it's just sort of, it feels like there's a disconnect between what these two people want and how they present themselves mm-hmm. and all that different type yeah. of stuff. And then eventually, as Tomas really pursues that relationship with Agat, Exarchopolis's character, we see that they separate. And then Martin has another lover, which I think is just part of that you know, increasing, like, he's his own guy. Like, he just got dumped. There's this hot writer who we just met the other day. So, so hot. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, everyone in this cast is hot. Yeah, I literally, like, I started off saying, like, Rogowski, 
by the end of this, I was like, Wishaw. And I'm like, I would also gladly go to Paris and just meet a new novelist and just be like, hey, how are you? <laughs> Got a new book on out there. I mean, apparently Paris is, you know, just filled to the brim with them. <laughs> so, you know. Just go out in some mesh top and you will find someone. Build up my cardigan collection. Yeah. But then it smells like cigarettes and garbage. So I don't know. <laughs> And as we see, not every love story has a happy middle or ending Mm -hmm. for that matter. And I think it's this idea of dissatisfaction and being afraid to commit. Being afraid to commit to starting a new relationship because you're afraid of leaving an old one behind. Being afraid to end that old relationship because you still love them, Mm -hmm. because you have so much history and comfort and familiarity with each other. Mm -hmm. It paralyzes these characters almost Mm. their inability to move on or to even make a choice Mm -hmm. follow through on that choice Mm -hmm. because one of the things the kind of maybe a central metaphor that's going on is that martin wants to sell the house that he and tomas own together once they get separated Mm -hmm. and tomas like doesn't want to lose his marriage doesn't want to lose the house doesn't want to lose anything right doesn't want to have to surrender anything or give anything up Mm -hmm. But what Martin is saying is, we've got people that are interested in looking at this house right now. If we don't let them see it, and if we don't make a move, they're going to keep looking and find someplace else, and then we won't be able to sell it. It's this idea that like you may not be ready, but if you don't go right now, you could miss an opportunity. And so mm-hmm. there's these windows of time that you have to act within. You have to be decisive. You have to make your choice. It's going to happen whether you like it or not, so you might as well get with it. The world, unfortunately, Tomas does not revolve around you. No, as much as Murkowski makes it seem so. Mm-hmm. I mean, just playing the ultimate egoistic. I mean, he's playing a film director. He's playing They've a film director, I was really going to say. They got egos the size of the fucking sun, you know. He's the guy who's like, no, 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 no. We need to stop this shot because this background actor doesn't have anything in her glass. Everybody <laughs> stop. You know, that's the level of control that he needs. Mm-hmm. And he can't have that in a relationship, no matter how hard he tries. No matter how passive-seeming a man like Martin may be, Mm -hmm. he's still his own guy. And if he's unhappy or dissatisfied, you know, you can't just fix that. Right, he's got a right to express it. You can try. Mm -hmm. Try and who it does not work. Real quickly on Agat. I think Agat was the part of this film didn't really quite click for me. I like that like, because she's her own person too, but I didn't really feel like I had the same strong sense of her. For instance, there's a scene where Tomas brings a bunch of his stuff over and moves into her apartment because he's been kicked out of his. And mm-hmm. she's like, How long are you staying? Which I initially am sort of like, Okay, is she a little irritated by this? Is she a little put upon by this? And then she hugs him. And I'm like, I can't quite get a read on where she is. And that became a little bit clearer by the end when certain plot developments happen. Mm-hmm. A little diner meeting, but uh, I was a little bit confused by her, and I was curious what you thought. Yeah, I thought she was, you know, just as great as Rogowski and mm. Bashaw, like as the third part of this triangle, and of course, as the only woman, which you know, throws an entire new dynamic into the mix. Right. I thought she did a fantastic job at playing this person who just abruptly enters their lives and then right. ends up exiting in almost an equally abrupt and messy way. Yeah. I like the abruptness, and I initially went into this like, ooh, cool 90-minute drama. I did kind of think that 
two hours might have been a little bit more what I want. Like, a little, just give me a little bit more development here, development there. Mm-hmm. And in this shorter format, what I really found myself focusing on was Wishaw. Because as it goes along, it becomes about his choice to be resolute in saying, like, either I'm with you or I'm not with you. He has to make that decision. That's yeah. sort of where I kind of mm-hmm. ultimately read most of this is that he has to figure out how to deal with the fact that these two people are coming together for himself. And for me, I see it as these two people who have found themselves entangled in this egotistic monster and untangling themselves. And then the fallout from that black hole at the center, realizing that he's not God, he's not the center of attention. Right. The world does not revolve around him. So in terms of sex, we see a couple between Rogowski and Exarchopolis. It's kind of really the first stuff that we see. And then there's kind of the scene, right? Where it's, Mm -hmm. they're really trying to rekindle this failing marriage. And, uh, oh boy, that is one of the most, like, steamy yet deeply uncomfortable scenes, particularly more by the time that the movie is over and you know some more things. Mm Mm-hmm. But just the fact that like this dude's been sleeping around on you, you know it, you've been mm-hmm. seeing somebody else, and yet he just saunters the fuck back into your house, argues yeah. with you in the right way, and then all of a sudden, we're hot and heavy again. Right. Like, this guy's betrayed your trust, and now all of a sudden, his dirty feet are up in the air around your neck. Like, But it's that thing where, you know, they know each other that well. Like, no matter mm-hmm. what, there's that intimacy. And I think, so, in terms of the... Uh, who's where this surprised me a little bit at first where Bragowski's the bottom and Masha's the top yes 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 and it's intense and the intensity kind of made me think it's like no this is a guy expressing his frustration here Mm -hmm. in a very real way it's not just romance there's like aggression there's dominance Mm -hmm. from the more passive party of this relationship that is going into that and i thought that that was a really well articulated point within the midst of just like how everything was set up again it reminds me of how a lot of movies in the 70s would use sex as a storytelling device you know to tell you so much about relationships you know for example like don't look now is another like desperate attempt to save a marriage during a sex scene even though it's uh it's not gonna happen you have all these sort of more with don't look now that edit is the thing and you have these moments that are just much more casual and human right. maybe a little bit indifferent putting my socks on taking my tie off mm-hmm. right in this movie once that scene is over tomas is like by the way i got a got pregnant <laughs> just letting you know oh God. fyi btw just <laughs> the messiest man I mean, have you ever known a bisexual man to have their shit together? <laughs> there was one other thing that I wanted to bring up earlier that I just remembered now, which is that, of course, Wishaw is an English actor. Rogowski is a German actor. And mm-hmm. they are playing English and German characters who are living in Paris, which is why yep. they speak English with each other. A lot of English is spoken even with French characters. Some French is used. But mm-hmm. it's this, I think it sort of speaks to their the way that they stick together and their mutual attraction is the fact that they are two mm-hmm. foreigners in this foreign place, which I think yeah. has a big impact on their comfort level with each other. Absolutely. What's interesting is that you get into the second sex scene between these two characters. And at that point, Agat is now living in their apartment because somehow, some way, 
Tomas has convinced Martin to try to make this menage with a baby work. Which is insane. Which leads, it's like, obviously. It's psychotic. Have you ever seen <laughs> Arrested Development? There's the thing with Tobias Funke and with his wife where they're like, he's a therapist. And she's like, what about an open relationship? And he's like, oh, those never work. But maybe they could work <laughs> for us. <laughs> uh and what that leads to is that second sex scene where they're like going at each other and now we're with Agatz in the other bedroom just like listening mm-hmm. to it because you realize that she's just as fucked over by this as yeah. Martin is. I mean, she's just curled up on the bed just all by herself looking miserable. And then, of course, once Martin's asleep, Tomas crawls out of his marriage bed and goes into hers where she's like awake and crying because she's like, what the fuck have I gotten uh. myself into? What have I agreed to? <laughs> Yeah, I really love the scene where she has her parents over for dinner and Tomas meets them for the first time. I mean, first of all, he comes in this like ridiculous little crop top. So he's coming back from having had sex with his husband. Mm -hmm. So he probably stinks unless he's had a shower, right? Which I don't know with this guy. He's coming back in a crop top. He's late. She's cooking. I doubt he's showered. I'm pretty sure he comes in and <laughs> says to her, I'm going to take a shower and change because then yeah. he's in a different outfit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he probably does smell. He's got a little bit of a funk going with his <laughs> dirty feet. <laughs> oh, God, wash those feet, please. And he comes in late. She's already cooking. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like this carelessness. And then the parents start drilling him. They're like, okay, so you're gay you're married you're german German. (laughs) their biggest concern really (laughs) because they don't want their daughter to be abandoned by her baby daddy who just runs back to berlin or whatever or as we might now be thinking of it because of that scene back to martin right back to the comfort of that relationship leaving Mm -hmm. this child who he's fathered without a parent (laughs) it's just like this is a man who has never once thought about the consequences of his action he's just like i thought we all wanted a baby i thought this was fine what's the problem not a single time in his life has he ever thought about what his actions have for other people nope (laughs) maybe by the end of the movie because the consequences are falling on his head (laughs) yeah when it's way too damn late yeah i have to say that yeah where this resolves which is a little spoilery i suppose but where just both martin and agat are just like fuck off just get the don't touch me don't look at me i don't love you i don't even like you Mm -hmm. you need to leave (laughs) i'm locking the door give me your fucking keys the smartest decision that any character makes in this movie off vita saying goodbye (laughs) (laughs) go to venice i don't know get away from me (laughs) the diner conversation is a doozy it's a heartbreaker other than at the very beginning, it's the only conversation that we see, the only exchange that we see between Martin and Agat, where mm-hmm. he buys her a baby gift for a baby that is no longer alive. Yeah. Oops. And the way that- He didn't tell you? That's it. It's that Tomas knows. He's been informed, but hasn't told Martin because he doesn't want to disrupt the equilibrium because he's like, fuck, if I tell him that, then this, mm-hmm. and this, and then this. And I really, like, it's interesting how much that is the moment where Martin really finds his resolve to say, like, enough. And then likewise, Martin shows up in that conversation to say, yep, we're going to Venice. It's going to be great. (laughs) We're a happy family all over again. And then when everything blows up with them, Tomas rushes over to where a got teaches school, knocks on the door, and he's like, come to Venice, (laughs) you fucking idiot. Right in front of her students. (laughs) I kept thinking, 
imagine being a little straight boy in France and your teacher is Adele X. Archopolis. <laughs> Truly a blessed country. So many babes. <laughs> uh, that must explain why they are the way they are. Truly the funniest culture. So silly. The most bizarre. Iris Sachs. I was interested. I mean, you can tell by the name that that is an American name. It's a Jewish name. He's from New York City. But this is an mm-hmm. entirely French production. Obviously, as we've talked about, French characters, lots of the dialogue is in French. You really, I wouldn't say that you could detect any American sensibility in this at all. No, no. It's very 70s European art house in a way that I really respond to. Mm, absolutely. But yeah, just a greatly enjoyable movie. Like you said, another strong drama for adults a la your past lives it's got a little bit more of that you know you know i think your thing with past lives is good movie great movie a little Mm -hmm. bit too removed a little bit too i don't quite know je ne sais quoi but this has that kind of like punchiness but it never Mm -hmm. loses that handle on being mature and realistic it's not a bunch of fucking yeah. explosive yelling matches and shit like that. It's adults living their adult lives, but it's got a little bit more of that fraughtness. It's yeah. got, you know, Rogowski's in the hallway at the very end, doubled over in grief because he's such an idiot. Mm. It's got pain. that underlying tension to it. Mm-hmm. But for me, this is in my top five of the year. Wow. At the wow. moment. This one land over Oppenheimer for you? It did. Yeah, I think one one spot, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah, I was a little bit kind of like return to soul it's nothing like corsage from last year but it just kind of mm-hmm. feels like it's in that range of sort of movies where i'm like yeah i like that you love it it's cool great it's my particular brand of catnip absolutely yeah i sort of circle back to i don't think the female part is quite as well developed although again i, I like by the end how much she kind of starts separating from this thing that she like you said she kind of abruptly goes into it abruptly walks mm-hmm. back out of it yeah i think i could have used more there but ultimately just very strong and intelligent movie it makes me want to watch more things that sax has made because of his approach to character yeah here. love is strange is really good mm, okay i have to check that one out yeah it's a kind of like what if you updated make way for tomorrow which is a studio film from the 1930s and is like the saddest thing you'll ever watch in your entire life but what if you update it and make it a gay couple with Alfred Molina and John Lithgow? Oh, I remember when this movie came out. I never did see it, but I, I remember the marketing for it. It's good shit. It's good. Yeah. Marissa Tomei. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other passages, takeaways? Just a fantastic movie. I really, really love this one. Anytime I watch a movie set in Europe, whether it's, you know, Fassbender, Mikhail Hanukkah, I'm always jealous of their bookshelves because <laughs> these characters, you know, the production designers are always just sort of like, what if we had 2,000 books in this apartment? <laughs> and I'm always like, ooh, just let me go look around. Let me just, I just want to take everything off the shelves. Yeah, in here. Great bookshelves, great costumes all the way around. One of those movies that'll make you want to just pack up and move to Europe right away, <laughs> I think. Ride your little bicycle around. Yeah, it would make a good ad. Buy a bunch of furry Make a good tourist ad. Visit Paris. (laughs) See the nightlife. Visit the clubs. Get involved in an emotionally taxing and eventually destructive relationship. Go out dancing. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for me. Yeah. Great to link back up, talk about all these new movies that we've been seeing in theaters. I think up next, once this one comes out, I think I'll probably edit up that 2003 episode Mm -hmm. we did for our favorite films that are turning 20 years old. That'll be a nice little thing to drop as, I believe, this week. 
one of the movies that we talk about on that episode, Park Chan-wook's Old Boy, is having a 4K re-release in theaters. So that'll be nicely timed up with that. Yeah, it's getting a big moment. Yeah, I keep seeing that trailer like every single time in theaters, along with the Killers of the Flower Moon, which I've seen yeah. like 20 times and still get excited by every time. Have you seen the posters where it's just like the individual characters in the film mm-hmm. and it's like X actor is character, like a Marvel movie almost. And it's like, all right, what are we doing? For Killers of the Flower Moon? For Old Boy. Oh, for Old Boy. Oh, for yeah. old boy. <laughs> Fucking neon. <laughs> uh, God bless. God bless. You know, I appreciate that they're really marketing that one. It seems like it's going to get a, you know, full court press, even though I watched it earlier in the year. It's a prep for our 2003 episode. I'll probably Mm -hmm. go see it again. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Cole, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming Mm -hmm. on to talk about some Kurosawa, some Billy Friedkin, Iris Sachs passages. It's been great. Yeah. Wanted to give you guys a smorgasbord. So, uh, enjoy. Yeah, this is probably our most concentrated dose of gay movies that we've ever talked about on this show. We'll have to do it again sometime. (laughs) Oh, of course. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, This has been great. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Uh, As we've already mentioned, check out our last couple episodes on the films of Christopher Nolan, including Oppenheimer, Memento, The Prestige, Inception, and many more. Check out our 2013 episodes for our favorite films that celebrated their 10th anniversary this year as a primer for our 2003 episode, which is going to be coming out next. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Ciao.